howdy. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. It's serious rock and roll today. We're talking about the famous, or maybe should I say infamous, uh, uh, rock and roll magazine, Cream. I've got J.J. Kramer, the current owner and son of Cream founder, Barry Kramer, legendary journalist, Jan Uhelski, and director, Scott Crawford. The three of them produced the new documentary, Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. Jan was a journalist for the magazine from its early days. She toured with Led Zeppelin. Uh, has a great story about the interview she did with Jimmy Page. She's also the only journalist to ever perform with Kiss in makeup on stage. You'll hear about that. Jan also talks about the crazy culture of the magazine, how it was so different from Rolling Stone, which launched a year before Cream did, and why all the rock stars would just show up and hang out at the Cream offices. She also talks about working with the legendary journalist Lester Bangs. He was played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in Almost Famous. You remember that? And J.J. Scott and Jan tell the, tori- uh, tell the story of Boy Howdy. Cream mascot and slogan. I always love that. Cream is the epitome of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture of the 70s and inspired so many musicians to pick up instruments and start bands, including Chad Smith and Kirk Hammett. Uh, they're both in the uh, in the documentary. Uh, you're going to want to check out the documentary after you listen to this, featuring Ted Nugent and Alice Cooper and so many great, great legendary guys. It's out now. Go to creammovie.com to get your virtual tickets. And go to my official YouTube channel tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, this Thursday at 9, as they said on SCTV, for episode four of the Winnipeggers. This one's called High School Parties, and it's exactly what you think it is. Dave Spivak and Ribo join me again on YouTube and Facebook, and you'll hear the story of the one party that Dave threw at his house. Uh, we also found a letter that I wrote to Dave after I moved from Winnipeg to Calgary in 1990. You got to check it out if you want to see what I wrote, hear what I wrote, and I insulted the shit out of him, of course. Winnipeggers, tomorrow night, Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, Facebook and YouTube. Of course, you hear about my high school party that my mom flipped out about when she got home. Uh, yes, and then come hang out with me live on the Saturday Night Special on Facebook Live and on the YouTube channel, 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, of course. Answering your questions, taking requests, bringing back the sing-along. We didn't do it last week. We didn't have time. Uh, we'll get your uh, laugh on tomorrow with the Winnipeggers and get your drink on with me live on Saturday night. But right now, let's get to the story of America's only rock and roll magazine, Cream. Boy, howdy. J.J. Kramer, Jan Uhelski, and Scott Crawford bring it to you live right now on Talk is Jericho. I want to jump right into this and we'll start the show right here because I think it's a great way to start off. Obviously, we're talking about one of the greatest rock and roll magazines of all time, Cream. And we've got, uh, we're talking about this great documentary that just came out. And uh, Scott Thompson, who made it, and J.J. Kramer, who is the legacy, and Jan Helski is the uh, amazing journalist, legendary journalist. Let me ask you a quick question. You were talking about Skype, Jan. How much different is it now to when you first started at Cream, you know, 50 years ago and connecting with somebody for an interview? Well, it was in person, you know, I mean, right. they're all there. I mean, it's a little disconcerting because all my interviews lately have been on, on Zoom and it's like, really? It's like, it's hard to describe somebody or it's hard to really get the real reaction. You know, it's a little too sanitized. You, you're just not in there. You know, we're from the era where, Rock journalism was a contact sport. Lester Bangs would pick fights with with his subjects, and you know you can't really do that over over Zoom or Skype. <laughs> you know it's interesting, and it's funny too because I have my camera on. If you guys turn your cameras on, we'd actually see each other's faces if you want, which makes it so much easier. Because I've been doing this podcast for seven years, and I I shy away from phone interviews for exactly that reason because sometimes you need to see somebody's face to judge when they're going to be talking, what they're thinking about. Sometimes they take pauses. Right. And as a journalist, you have to be able to see that and feel it. 
Because a lot of times, if not, you're just talking over each other, which, like you said, really desensitizes the whole interview and makes it very sterile rather than as personal as it could be. Yeah, it's so true. I, I, especially when you're writing it, because everything counts. It's like the objects in your room count, the way somebody grimaces, you know, I mean, it all is like forensic evidence to actually who you are. You leave clues when you don't even know you are leaving clues. That's a great point. Like you said, when you go into somebody's house, like for example, and I want to talk about this in depth when we get to it, Jan, but when you go to like Gene Simmons' house and he's in the documentary it is filled with nonstop kiss memorabilia and souvenirs and merchandise and all that sort of thing. And when you go to Paul's house, he has nothing other than a pinball machine, and that's about it. So it gives you a little bit more into the character of these guys when you're actually in their house and seeing what their environment is. Absolutely. Yeah, Gene's got his own museum. That's where we shot the interview, actually, was in the Kiss Museum in his, right off of his, what, dining room, I think, if I remember correctly, Jan? Here's the better part. And then you go downstairs a level, and he's got this treasure chest. Oh, right, yes. Thick, like, <laughs> so it's like, okay, you go, should I really do this? Or why don't it be cool and not do it? But, you know, no, the other, the other like, merch obsessive that we all are we all took home like a good bag. that was oh uh, th- that was that was one of my favorite parts of of that interview where the interview's done and gene's like now you get grab bags like you're going right. home from a like a fifth grade birthday party and he gave us these like little goodie bags and like we went down and we, we it's like okay we have 10 tickets what prize can we get from the kiss you know behind the kiss counter all right you get the hello kitty kiss co-branded pack of six pack of kleenex i still have that somewhere yeah me too i never used it i've got it in my laundry room he said to me he's like uh so do you have children i'm like yeah yeah how old are they uh you know 10 and 13 or something whatever they were at the time or not even younger and he goes this is for them and he gives me a pillow that's got kiss dressed up in new york yankees outfits and it's like Thanks, Gene. Why would my 10-year-old kids in Tampa, Florida care about KISS? Oh, this is just for your kids. <laughs> but this, this, I, I love talking to, to guys and girls like yourselves because we're all such fans of rock and roll. And those experiences right there are something that, that most fans would pay millions of dollars to have. And, and we get to do this for a living. But let's talk a little bit about, about this documentary and kind of how it all came to be, because it's really good. And it's, it's a fun time machine, not just how important music magazines used to be back in the 70s and 80s, but just the whole culture and, and society that surrounded it. So how, how, did the, how did you guys come up with the, the idea for the documentary? Jan and I worked together for years. Um, you know, we stayed in touch, and I did my first film. And when that was over, I said, you know, Jan, we, this cream story, like it's, it's just ripe for a documentary treatment. Like this is such a, between the characters and between the importance of, of the magazine and its legacy, there's so many different angles to come at. And, uh, and she agreed and she put me in touch with, um, uh, JJ, the son of Barry, the publisher. And, uh, I just kind of pitched it and we hit it off and it was just, the ball started rolling pretty quickly after that. Well, and, and, and let's talk about this because your father, JJ, was kind of the creator of the magazine. Yeah, he, he was. And for a long time, I'd wanted to look for the right opportunity to put my stamp on the Cream Legacy. And I'd been approached 
a number of times over the years about doing a, a documentary or some you know cream related project and for one reason or another i just didn't vibe with that director's vision and when jan connected scott and i it like clicked immediately um he knew that this was a story not just about like a static thing not just a magazine it was about the people behind the magazine that's what really made it special was you had a cast of characters there that was they were very much like their own rock band that was putting out a magazine and that to me really resonated because it allowed us to do the, the a deeper kind of character study of all these people including my dad um so that was that was a really special moment when i kind of realized what this thing could be um and then we were off and running it's a pretty cool kind of uh, legacy tribute to be able to make a movie about your dad, both the highs and the lows. Now, I mean, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, wrong about this, but in the movie, didn't they say that your dad passed away with, was it you in his arms? It was actually um, my, my dad, his father passed away while, while clutching him. In his arms. Gotcha. I, you know, I can't even imagine what, yeah. what sort of trauma that that created. But so I think, you know, it, and, and throughout the film, you know, he kind of hints and my mom talks about this a little bit. You know, he, he kind of hints that he he was going to die at a young age as well. He was sort of had this self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. that unfortunately, you know, th- that's exactly how it played out. But yet he leaves behind this legacy of this rock and roll magazine. And it's interesting because. You know, I, I didn't realize the connection with Cameron Crowe. I always thought when he made Almost Famous, he was working with Rolling Stone, but it sounds like his, those are his experiences from working in Cream that he put onto the screen with just these giant personalities that were, it's almost like rock photographers in the 70s and 80s. They were as much of the rock stars as the musicians themselves. And here we are in 2020 when the, the bands aren't really rock stars. and They're certainly not rock star journalists or rock star photographers anymore like there was back in these days. I think that's true. And I think that applies to the, to the writers in cream as well. Like that was the other thing that I always loved about the magazine was that the writers to me always, and, and the photographers for that matter, but the writers specifically seemed just as interesting as the artists they were covering and just as large, you know, larger than life, just like the, the, the folks they were covering. So uh, that was something new that I had not really experienced in terms of, reading a magazine where, where you can relate to the person writing the story just as much as the artist that they're writing about. Jan, how, how was that for you? Um, obviously, you started in the early 70s, and you're around all of these, like I mentioned, rock star journalists, and you were a teenager, very young. So you, you grew up around, around this world. Tell us a little bit about, about your initial thoughts when you were getting involved with Cream and all the crazy personalities that were involved. I had worked at um, Grandy Ballroom. It was like like the Fillmore of Detroit. So I had already been around the rock stars, you know, because I was giving them Coca-Cola or going into like the Fillmore's dressing room, you know, with one of those don't talk to them kind of directions. So, you know, I, I was really used to the way they were. And what happened was like right next to the bar at the Grandy Ballroom, there was a kiosk that Barry Kramer ran from Mixed Media, the head shop he owned, and they were selling cream magazines. And I thought, oh, my God, if I give them free Cokes, they'll give me a job. <laughs> well, fast forward, they did, not because of the Coca-Colas. But I, I just went full guns blaring. I thought that, you know, I could do it, too. The, the, the bar was set so high, and everybody helped each other. Like When I started writing, you know, it was kind of like 
a group effort. Like my first story, which is in the documentary, is Dave Marsh took me to Smokey Robinson's retired press conference telling me I had to write about it. So it's like I got thrown at the deep end. I mean, my first story was a cover story. Wow. It was really like high concept. It, it was like not by committee, but actually like you had your whole cheering committee, like everybody would help you. Um, we, we did that throughout. Like, you know, we were first among equals. And do we think we were like a band? I think we thought we were exactly the same as the rock stars, not with ego, but just we were all trying to do the same thing then. It was just to explain music or there was some code in the music that, you know, was like impelling us forward, giving us like information. The musicians weren't any different from the photographers or the, um, or the rock journalists. Although I have to say, some of the, the photographers are still bigger than life, like Ross Kaplan and Bob Rock. Like they still look like aging rock stars, but they right. still like, go in and the presence of rock star. No, but they come almost. They, they come from a different time, though. Like I said, like, there's no hot young upstart new Ross Halflin or, or Niels Lozauer or you know Mark Weiss guy Weiss even had nicknames. And it's the same with the writers too. Like when you talk about Lester Bangs who is in Almost Famous by, I think he's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, I didn't really know much about Lester Bangs, you know, you know Rodney Bingenheimer and these type of larger-than-life guys. So to see him on film and see him in this movie, it was really interesting to me after hearing about him for so much. I couldn't believe how much footage you guys had from that time frame. It seemed like that, that the cream editors were filming everything in that office. It must have been a treasure trove for you, Scott, to find that. It was. We really lucked out. I, I know initially, uh, JJ, when we first started you know, working on this, sent me the footage. Um, you know, The movie starts off with that black and white sort of roundtable footage where you – and then you get an insight into the, how the offices looked. That was actually a PBS affiliate in uh, Detroit that shot that. And it's like a 25-minute piece and i knew when we had when jj sent me that early on i said okay we've got a doc because you know trying to tell the story of a magazine which is this this, you know just a product essentially you know you have to be able to tell visually explain um you know what those offices look like what those people what you know just the smells the whatever of the offices and you know that footage gives you all of that and more and so so in addition to that jj also uh, when he was looking through his mother's basement, and I'll let JJ pick it up from here, but um, found some uh, a real treasure trove of stuff <laughs> in his mother's basement that he'd never seen before. So uh, there's stuff in there, you know, footage of Lester that no one's ever seen before because of, uh, of just the videos that JJ found in his mom's basement. Yeah, it was uh, it was really kind of like serendipitous the way that we discovered some of this footage. So we had you know the stuff that that Scott was talking about there was a local PBS station that had come down to Cream's offices and captured a bunch of uh, footage and like a round table discussion. And that stuff was like golden, like right out of the gate. Once to Scott's point, once we saw that we knew we really had a movie because we could add this visual imagery to it, you know, an otherwise static, you know, thing. Right. But then when I went and started looking through these unmarked boxes in my mom's basement, I came across these old videotapes. They weren't even like VHS or beta tapes. I don't even know what the format is, but they were massive. And I'm like, there's gotta be something on these. So we, I, I took a huge box of them down to like a local, you know, video place to have them all digitized. And lo and behold, um, it was some of the footage you see of like Lester 
um, with um, Robert Duncan, one of the other editors in the cream offices, just like messing around with like bags over their heads and snapping their fingers, never before seen Lester footage. And then on a personal note, I found um, footage, which is also in the film of, of me and my, my dad, like my dad sort of holding me as, as a, a baby um, and talking to me. And that just like blew my mind. Wow. I, you know, yeah. had it not been for, for the film, I, I never would have gone looking, gone fishing for that stuff. So it was, it was really incredible. Jen, talk a little bit about, about Lester Bangs you know, as a professional, as a character, because you knew him right off the bat from being green. I mean, he was bigger than life. When he came in, he looked like a shoe salesman. I mean, he was dressed in a three-piece suit. He was like a substitute teacher or somebody like, you know, Mr. Bangs. I think he thought in order to work for us, he had to dress the part, whatever that he thought that was. And then slowly but surely, he, he like, relaxed. But he's a bigger-than-life personality. He just took up more room than most people. I mean, he didn't have the cleanest personal habit. So when you talk about the smell, Scott, I mean, you know, that's what I was referring to. (laughs) I mean, it always used to smell like feet around his desk and he would eat Taco Bell burritos and he would leave them half eaten on his desk and you'd find them three days later. So it's a challenge to sit next to him for six years. (laughs) What kind of relationship did he have with, uh, with the musicians? We had this saying, the two of us rock stars are not our friends, but as Karen points out, he really did have an attachment to a lot of the people he he interviewed, especially Lou Reed. It was such a love-hate on both sides. I think that they both expanded each other's myths. I mean, how often does a rock writer get to enhance a musician's reputation? But I think that those interviews live on past both of their legacies because they're both gone and people talk about that all the time. Uh, he really would... I would say pushed him around. He actually would make it a little awkward or he would be very confrontational. Yet he was always saying it with a laugh. I mean, it's always a Budweiser open on his lap. And he was, you know, when he was insulting them and they did never see it coming. But, you know, he got the greatest stuff. One time he went to this press party with Slade and um, he initiated a food fight. And, of course, they retaliated. So we, like, really trashed Trader Vicks. But when we were doing research for the documentary, I was reading old reviews, and actually the Slade's record review is him recounting that food fight. So anything was game. Like, anything that happened to us ended up in one of Lester's reviews. And that's the thing, too. Like, Cream was not politically correct, what we're talking about in this day and age. There was a lot of kind of, you, you read back to some of those headlines and pictures, and it's like, wow, things sure were different back then. But when you guys gave a bad review, sometimes the musicians would uh, would just show up at the building looking for uh, for, for revenge. <laughs> yeah, like Joan Jett, you mean? <laughs> that's yeah. Tell that's a great story. Tell us that one. Fans would always come by, and we would have they would come into Metro Airport, and the next step stop they'd make would be our cream offices, like the Dictators came and Kiss came, and and Billy Squire. I mean countless people all the time but she came with intention i mean they had toby mamus who now works for alice cooper drive them directly to the office because they wanted to confront rick johnson who reviewed the runaways um which just sucked and she wasn't having it and um you know she's never ever really gotten over that and i've interviewed her for years and she always brings it up so 
we found the letter and we just went with it. But she, she still thinks to this day that Rick Johnson was hiding, that he really wasn't living in Urbana, Illinois. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, that, and that's the interesting thing about it. Like you had such a, a connection with Detroit and, there, and Detroit was such a hot scene at that point in time. It's really interesting to see just how, how much Alice Cooper was there and Ted Nugent was around and the MC5 and Iggy Pop. Did you guys have a better relationship with those guys because um, you were based in Detroit? I think so. There's this camaraderie about Detroiters. I mean, I have a friend who says there's no such thing as an ex-Detroiter. But Detroiters have this, like, I don't know, this understanding of each other. It wasn't a huge scene. It was like the us and thems, or they charmingly call it the straights and the heads. So there really weren't many bands and bands that we knew we knew and they would come over because cream was like a gathering point like when it was down on cass avenue people would come for these massive parties i think that there was this simpatico i mean we still i mean to this day i'm still friends with most of those people i mean wayne kramer's in the movie you know yeah and wayne kramer did the music and you know that's just the strength of this 50-year relationship i mean iggy pop that's that's a different subject <laughs> but um but, you know, I, I do think that there's just something about that whole Detroit aesthetic. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, like at the time, Jan, didn't the MC5, wasn't like the MC5 house right down the street from the cream offices? So there was, you know, there were people probably hanging out all the time. Oh, yeah, they were. I mean, even people now are coming out of the woodwork going, don't you remember the time you were at the, we were at the office? I go, no. But, you know, they. It was like, you know, I remember like after Faces show, like Rod Stewart came by and Peter Wolf, he says in the film, he was there too. It was just like a gathering point. Like Steve Paul would bring the Winter Brothers who are just weirder than life. <laughs> really interesting times. I mean, people always say, did you know you were making history? And no, you don't really know. You just know that you're doing something really incredibly cool. Scott, when you're looking at putting together this documentary, who were some of the, the interviews that you knew you had to get on tape? Well, luckily, you know, um, you know, we kind of made a wish list and we got just about everyone we wanted. Unfortunately, um, some of the staff members uh, uh, had already passed away either before we started filming or during the production process. So there are a number of folks that I would have liked to have had in the film and had their voices, but unfortunately um, just didn't work out that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to, you know, to get... You know, Kirk Hammett, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, uh, uh, you name it. Um, Alice, Ted. Wayne Kramer. And then to get Wayne to actually score the film was oh, that's cool. just not anything I had ever imagined. So um, I think we were we were fortunate in, in that respect. We, we, we got just about everyone that I think we, we tried to get. Um, but that is why the movie took almost four years to, to, mm. to, you know, we were crisscrossing the country and, you know, you're dealing with, artists schedules and their tours and this is obviously pre-covid when everyone was on the road so but yeah i think we were pretty pretty fortunate you know it's interesting to me because i'm a little bit younger than than i thought chad smith was great in it too yeah and chad's a good friend of mine i was texting him about it how he showed up at the offices and alice cooper walked out and he rode there on his bike as a teenager and i mean stories like that like i have a million of them i'm sure all of us do from when we were kids and it just really like it really reminded me just how important magazines were back in those days. And it's kind of like that now in Europe. They still have influence. But here in the States, obviously, it's just all internet and online. But there was a huge fan base 
for, for, for rock and roll magazines, especially for Cream and, and Circus Magazine and those type, those type of things. So when you went to, did you know Chad Smith was a big fan or did you have an open casting call or how did that work? Actually, Chad uh, reached out to us um, when he heard that we were um, making the film and, uh, you know, his, his people got in touch with us and said, you know, Chad's really excited, he wants to be a part of this. So oh, that's cool. We, you know, we went up to his place uh, in the Hamptons, I believe, and uh, shot him there. And, uh, yeah, it was great. It was uh, really great. He's, he, he's, I love that story that he tells. I mean, that's just, it kind of sums up, I think, a lot of our experiences um, at that age. Just briefly run through the story again. So basically he, um, you know, he's this fanatical cream reader and he's, I think 12 or 13 at the time, I could be wrong. One day just realized he was re- looking at the masthead, um, you know, about, you know, where all the, the staff box, where all the writers are. And he looked at the bottom and he sees that it's the address is in Birmingham, which was only a few miles from his house. And he kind of got in this argument with his brother and his brother was like, nah, that's just like where they do the fulfillment or something. That's not actually, you know, the real offices. I think Chad was kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to show you. So he got on his bike. He rode down, parks his bike and out comes Alice Cooper, you know, from the cream office. (laughs) Not just his bike, his his Schwinn. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's right. Very important part of the story. And out comes Alice Cooper. And I don't think he said a word to Alice, I think. But if you see him, when you see on his expression on the screen in the film, it kind of says it all. And once again, back in those days, you, you didn't just have your cell phone. To, Could I take a picture? Like, it was almost like seeing a Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. It was like <laughs> exactly. nobody really believed you if they would do that, you know? JJ, I, I, I want to talk to you about um, something I always loved about Cream, which is the Boy Howdy uh, logo. And, and, and you're wearing the shirt right now. Talk a little bit about what exactly that is and where it came from, because that's the one thing whenever someone said, even when my, uh, my producer said, do you want to do, do a show about Cream Magazine? I said, boy, howdy, yes. Like, everybody knows boy, howdy is related to Cream. Tell us a little bit about the, the story behind that. Yeah, so as the, as the legend goes, um, our crumb wandered into my dad's uh, record store and head shop in Detroit's Cast Corridor. Um, this was, you know, right after Cream had launched. So we're talking, you know, six, probably late 69. And uh, one of the other clerks there, who was actually Cream's founding editor, Tony Ray, recognized Crumb and approached him uh, about maybe doing something for the magazine. And uh, apparently my dad tried to lowball him, giving him like 35 bucks to, you know, draw a cover. And Tony uh, <laughs> co- convinced him to up the offer to 50 and he drew, you know, the, the first iteration of, of Boy Howdy. And as I understand it, my dad didn't even like it when it first ran, but it immediately just started to resonate with, with the readership. And so, you know, over the next, you know, years or months or years, it, it, it became incorporated into every issue and then became the mascot. And, you know, it was intended, you know, to be a bottle of cream. That's, that's my understanding of what Arkham was trying to draw, like Boy Howdy is supposed to be a, a bottle of cream. And, the boy howdy part, I think it was just like, you know, something weird to throw in, like, a, you know, sort of a, a southern way of saying, you know, that's cool or hello. But yeah, I mean, it's become its own animal. I, it's like when you see it, it it's I, I kind of liken it to like, even if someone isn't a fan of the Ramones, if they see a Ramones shirt and that the Ramones logo, they kind of know what it what it stands for. Absolutely. It's the same thing with boy howdy. I get approached all the time when I'm wearing a boy hottie shirt and people are like, that is just, that is so cool. 
tell me about it. What is it? So it's got this kind of ethos to it. It's the stones, uh, lips and tongue. Yeah, that's right. You don't even, yeah. As soon as you see it, you know what it is. Or CBGB's t-shirt or something. It's almost. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> boy, howdy. Yep. My, my stuffed boy, howdy. From right. Back in the day. So, Jan, uh, one of the reasons why I was really excited that, to hear that you're going to be doing this with us is I'm a huge KISS fan, and I know that story, the famous story that you have, remember hearing it years and years and years and years ago, but I would love to hear just the whole tale, how you ended up on stage with KISS, the only journalist ever to do so, and maybe even the only musician, I don't know any other musician that ever appeared with KISS, at least at that time frame, on stage with the band. Well, they were really trying hard to break in. They hadn't yet um, recorded a live, which is the thing that really broke them open. JJ's mom, Connie Kramer, and I were working really late one night, and she was going through an Esquire magazine, and there was a writer named Blair Sobel who had done a story about being an iCat for a night. And she shows me the story, and she goes, could you do something like this? I said, oh, absolutely, I could do that. She goes, with who? I said, with Kiss. So the next day I called the label and I said, I've got this great idea to do a story on KISS. And I thought, yeah, you can do a story on KISS. I said, no, no, not on KISS. I want to be a member of KISS. And they said, really? Okay, well, let's think about it and we'll call you back. About 20 minutes later, I get a call from um, the vice president of promotion. He goes, okay, you're on, but you have to give us one promise. And I said, what's that? And they said, not to call kiss a glam band and i said well why would i Mm. so a week later they roll into town where they're actually recording a live i meet up with them at soundcheck and the four guys are standing in the corner and i go up to them and i'm real bravado in my high heels i'm saying yeah tomorrow tomorrow i'm doing this with you and they look at me like i'm insane (laughs) like i'm some kind of strange fan deranged and (laughs) After it's explained, I mean, the next morning we were on this little prop plane to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I suit up. I mean, they take me backstage and for about an hour and a half, it really took a long time to put the makeup on. They berate me because I don't know how to put on face makeup. I mean, it was so revealing to me. And I think the most revealing thing, which is really funny to me, when you talk about no cell phones, I just thought about this the other day. Even though it's been such a long time ago, I had never heard from anybody who was in that that show of 5,000 or the reviewers. Nobody noticed that I was on stage with Kip. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's bizarre. Like I could have staged that. I didn't even have to go to write this story. Right. It was wild. I think that it really changed the way I've looked at music reporting since that moment because I understood the lure of what it feels like to have a crowd just emit all this crazy kinetic energy at you like it's addictive and i could see why hair metal bands don't want to give it up like why would you mm-hmm. get so much but it, it was um, it was amazing and i'm really surprised that i pulled it off what uh, what kind of makeup did they have you put on well they agreed that they should all make part of my face up so what happened is backstage <laughs> started arguing because they thought gene was making me look like him so <laughs> What sued was this, this like back and forth. And um, so then they just passed me around and I ended up, it's like a composite of like dress to kill, like how, how they have that composite of all of them. So right. you see the pictures, I'm, it's a little messy, but I'm a little bit more, I think I'm more 
Peter than anybody else, though. <laughs> and what did you do on stage? They gave me a guitar. They did not plug it in. They gave me my own live mic, and I sang, and I danced, and I acted like member of KISS in, like, black tights and black leotard. Do you remember what song it was? Yeah. Rock and roll all night and party every day. <laughs> no, I don't remember. What? Where are we? <laughs> And then the, uh, I love the title for the, for the article, too. What was it? I dreamed I was on stage with Kiss in my maiden form bra. There used to be an ad campaign when I was a teenager <laughs> where women would wake up in really strange places, like in a fire station or in a posh restaurant or in front of the UN, and they would be wearing, like, you know, a skirt or, or pants, and they'd be only wearing their bra. So I thought that was probably a really good way to do it, like, how weirder to get than being on stage with this in your maiden form bra. You know, that's, that's, that's another great point that you just made. I was talking to uh, not a name drop, but I was talking to Lars Ulrich the other day because Metallica has been doing this Metallica Monday where they put up a, a show from their past on Monday night. And it was one from like 1989 when they actually all switched instruments on stage. Lars sang, James played drums, Kirk and Jason switched. And I was just talking to Lars about that. And he said, you have to understand back then, there was no cell phones. There was no social media. It was just the people in the crowd would see it and enjoy the moment. Yeah. Of course it sucks. Lars Ulrich as the lead singer is terrible. But if you were there that night, it's something that you would think is amazing. Just like you said, you being with, on stage with Kiss, there was no one to take pictures. So if you weren't there, you never would have even known. Absolutely. It's like an urban myth. Like I could have made it up. It really struck me as being, I just, I don't know, just after all those years, it was like the light bulb went off. Like, Really? I could have made it up. It's like the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Right. That was in a moment, 50 years later. Scott, when you were filming this documentary, were there any stories that stood out to you of being like some of your favorites from this amazing cast of characters that you assembled for, for, for the doc? We really lucked out. Everyone was really wonderful to work with, very uh, giving with their time and been very supportive all along. Um, uh, the one story that kind of sticks out, because I'm still in therapy for it, um, <laughs> it's Mitch Ryder. We were interviewing him and his uh, battery pack. He was wearing a you know a lav mic and his battery pack. We were getting some audio issues, so I had to adjust his audio pack, which was you know on his waistline, and then just continued to talk. And I just kind of took a whiff, and he goes, "Yeah, I farted on you." <laughs> so. And we just carried on. But uh, yes, still recovering from that one. But um, lots of great stories. That's the one that sticks out in my mind, of course. But uh, plenty more. I mean, Gene Simmons' house in itself is a... That's a documentary right there. Right. Yeah. Not, I'll forget anytime soon, that's for sure. One of my favorites that, that I think it, it's just so fun in the film is, you know, when Iggy Pop shows up at the cream offices and doesn't say hi to my dad. And uh, he he's looking for Lester Bangs and... My dad sneaks up behind him and dumps, uh, you know, a, a trash can on top of his head, because that to me is like the epitome of what cream was. It's like, you know, a very much bite the hand that feeds. You know, you're on, you're in our house now. Don't forget your manners, right. sort of thing. So, you know, I thought that was such a picture perfect way in in a thirty second span to really explain to someone who might not know what cream was really all about. There were there were no idols uh, in, in that office. It's interesting, too, because when your dad passed away and you're four years old, I think. 
That's right. He he left the magazine to you. He did. So you were the owner of Cream at four years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool to talk about it, show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's a really cool uh, Malibu Barbie dream house you just brought in. But let's just talk about my dad's rock and roll magazine that he left me. Yeah, that I own, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, obviously I was I was so young when, when he passed away. And it was, I don't think I had a true appreciation for, you know, what that meant until I was much older. But as a, you know, a kid, um, I definitely wore it as a, a badge of honor, you know, at sleepaway camp. I was definitely known as like the, the cream kid. Um, my mom would send up care packages that had cream t-shirts and issues of the magazine. And that made me a very popular camper. You know, I, it wasn't until, you know, well into adulthood that I started to really appreciate, you know, what, what that meant and, uh, how special it was. Jan, what were some of your other favorite assignments? Obviously being on stage with Kiss is a highlight. Was there other ones that you have that stand out for you? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I think my well, I'm not saying it's my favorite, but it was probably the most awkward when I was on tour with Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page wouldn't talk to me directly. Um, I probably made the greatest faux pas because on that tour, the um, the tour doctor had made an announcement that someone stole the Quaaludes, which used to be like a party drug, kind of pre-ecstasy. I made the mistake of asking Jimmy Page if he stole the Quaaludes. But I, I think that really what what capped it off is when I walked in there, he said to me that he wouldn't speak to me directly. So he made his publicist to come in. So I had to ask every question to the publicist who spoke English. She had to ask him, he would answer her and she would answer me. And that went on for an hour and it was awkward. And I was like so young and so really not that experienced. I kept going, Oh my God, what am I going to do? And I go, Oh yeah, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make this really funny because it was really funny. The greatest part about this is years later, um, Q Magazine reprinted that story when I updated it a little bit, and out of the blue, a friend of mine who worked with Jimmy Page called me up and said, "There's somebody here who wants to talk to you." And he put Jimmy Page on the phone, and Jimmy Page said, "Jan, I've always wanted to tell you I stole the Quaaludes." <laughs> <laughs> That's my memorable story because I love Led Zeppelin beyond all others. I just love the fact what you said when I was on tour with Led Zeppelin. So what were you doing on tour with Led Zeppelin? Well, I was writing a cover story. I'd been on tour with them a couple of times, but the second time was the almost famous kind of moment where he refused to talk to me for five days. I'd already done all my other interviews and Robert Plant was like charming and and effervescent and very Robert Plantish and Jimmy would hide from me, you know, they'd schedule an interview and they go, oh, no, no, he doesn't feel like it. He's been up for three days. And this was the fifth day I had to go back to Detroit to write the story. And they finally relented. So in the afternoon, he said, OK, I'll talk to you, which he really didn't. I mean, he talked to the public. Right. It was amazing. I mean, you go on the starship every night. We we hold up in like whatever city we were there and then we fly out to different shows. I mean, the time before, um, we were in the Plaza Hotel, and we'd fly up from the Plaza Hotel, and I remember going to his party at Dobbs Ferry, and there's Mick Jaggers and Fog Hat, and it was like, okay, that was star power for me. Not Fog Hat so much, but I remember, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so appalled I was taller than he was. I mean, I think that just ruined that for me. <laughs> Did you ever have any experiences with, with, uh, with McCartney or Lennon uh, in, in the 70s writing with Cream? 
or George or anybody from the Beatles? No, I've never met. Well, actually, I've met Ringo recently, but I never met a Beatle. So they they weren't uh, doing a lot of stories and press at that point in time? No, I think what it was more is when I got there, I was like the girl or the low girl on the totem pole. So I basically took stories that nobody else wanted, which is how I made my career. Like Lester interviewed McCartney or Dave Martin. Gotcha. And I got Kiss and I got, you know, Led Zeppelin and I got like DTO. So I got all the headbangers because nobody else wanted them, which I pretty much how I made my career was taking, you know, taking the leftovers and making them into something bigger than life or making it really funny. How long did you work for Cream for, Jam? When did you finally leave? I left in 1976 and I continued on as the West Coast editor and then I, I did a, a Confessions of the Film Fox column for a couple of years after that. And then I went back in the 80s to do another column. So on and off about 10 years. It's interesting, Scott, you could have made a documentary about kind of like the, the later years of Cream because I got into music in the mid-80s and Circus Magazine and Faces Magazine and those ones. And Cream was almost like you knew that it had existed earlier and it was almost kind of like the, not a relic, but it's kind of like the old guys trying to hang on where suddenly they go from these really cool articles to having, you know, generic rat on the, rat Motley Crue poison on the cover just to try and keep up. Yeah, that was um, I actually some pretty funny anecdotes about about that period from some of the writers. Uh, I, I, I remember one example was um, I think it was Rat and maybe Motley Crue on the cover, and all the taglines. Um, you're right; they were older writers at that point, and, and were not interested at all in, in hair metal. Mm-hmm. So all the taglines of the stories, <laughs> the features, were actually Robin Hitchcock song titles. Air supply. Yeah, it just didn't. didn't <laughs> care that much about um the music and i think that started to show motley crew all out of love <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah i think it was just like i really wanted to focus on that on that um the hated the seven yeah and not so much on the later period not to be dismissive of that because there's certainly tons of great writing for years and years uh throughout the 80s uh you know i mean they they took a lot of chances i mean they were you know, in between the hair metal bands, they'd also cover REM and mm-hmm. the Smiths and, and things that were happening in England. So they were still tuned in. But I think the pressure, having switched to another publisher, I think the the, the pressure was really on what was going to sell on the newsstand. And that's why you saw that switch editorially to a lot of the hair metal stuff. And, and I think, you know, what, what we learned in making the doc as well is there there are probably 10 cream movies or documentaries or TV shows that could be made. Sure. You know, there's, as you see in the film, I think that there's a really powerful story about like the women at Cream and how important they were, you know, Jan and Susan Whitehall and Sylvie Simmons. Your mom. Yeah, my mom and, and you know, photographers um, like Lynn Goldsmith as well um, that were a huge part of, you know, making Cream um, what it was. And then there's a whole story, I think, about when Cream was living on a farm in rural Michigan, which was essentially a commune. Um, at that time, they were actually under surveillance by the FBI because many of Cream's writers were associated with uh, John Sinclair and the White Panther Party. Wow! And the FBI had approached a number of you know folks in on the Cream team and essentially asked them to become informants for the FBI. And as the legend goes, my dad politely told the FBI to go uh, f themselves when asked to uh, to become an informant. But there's a whole other story there. You know, there's a whole movie, I think, about Lester and Lou, you know, as Jan mentioned earlier. So 
that was the really cool part for me about getting into the trenches and into the archives here is like there, there are so many stories that can still be told, mm-hmm. you know, from, from uh, the cream treasure trove. Did you live on the commune, Jan? I did. Two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what that was like. Well, I learned how to cook because I knew nothing. I was just, you know, I think I just turned 19 and there I was out in a farm with horses and what did I know from horses? It's like, you know, we would cook together. We didn't have a lot of money. I mean, everything went back into the magazine. So part of how we lived was Barry paid our room and board and all of our food. And when we were out in rural Michigan, there was nobody there. I mean, we just had each other, which was a little claustrophobic and a little bombastic because there are parts where they talk about, especially the Dave Marsh and the Lester fight over over the dog shit on the typewriter. I mean, it was like that all the time. It was like that creative spark that comes out of friction, you know, the Keith Richards, Mick Jagger kind of right. thing. I mean, that was happening all the time. Tell us about the dog shit story, Scott. That's another great one. <laughs> oh, that was, yeah. Jan had told me that years, or I I think Jan had told me and I'd read about it. And so I was dying to tell that story. Uh, <laughs> and we actually got Dave to, to tell the story. Uh, so Dave was, was, was a, a, a editor or? Yeah. Yeah, he was an editor, but Lester was like the head writer, kind of. Yeah, Jan, what was was Lester like the senior editor or something at that point? Yeah. Or at that point, we were really egalitarian. Like nobody nope. had titles. Gotcha. But Dave was the editor in chief, and Lester was the senior editor. I was a senior editor. Ben Edmonds was the senior editor, features editor. So you know, we all pretty much did that. I think what the story is is that. There were such two different mentalities. Dave Marsh is very serious, and he was a member of the White Panther Party. He wanted us to be political, and Lester wanted us just to make fun of everybody. It just blew up in the case of Lester, who was an unruly, like kind of unclean, clownish guy, had a dog that was similar to his personality, and Dave Marsh had a very uptight, wiry dog. So what happened was Lester's dog, as was his want, would like defecate all over the office. One day, David just had it. I remember watching him do this like it was yesterday. He put up with a paper towel right on Lester's eye, and we wait. And then Lester comes in, sees it, and goes ballistic. And they tumble outside, outside of the um, office, and they are fighting now. Dave Marsh is five seven. Lester was six one. It was never going to be a fair fight, hmm. but it was pretty entertaining, <laughs> but a little scary. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> that's rock and roll for sure, right there. You know, when you talk about the influence of of some radio stations back in the seventies, for example, the the Cleveland DJ who kind of got Rush off the ground. Did Cream do that for, for any bands, like by supporting a certain band, making them, getting them to be a major league? I think, I think you could argue they did that for Kiss. What do you think, Jan? Oh, yeah, I think we totally did it for Kiss. I had to lobby hard to get them in initially, but after that, it was like they were so accessible to us, so it was like this mutuality. Like I always think that our fortunes were really inextricably tied because if they got bigger, they'd never forgot us. I mean, we have platinum records, you know, they were there all the time. Whenever we needed something, they would do it. They did a kiss comics with us. Mm. I think that not rush though. Yeah. <laughs> Our poison pen um, recipients. <laughs> and, and you could also say that about Iggy too. I mean, the Stooges and all that proto punk stuff. I mean, no one else is really covering that. Oh, and it, Patty Smith too. Patty Smith. Patty Smith. Yeah. I mean, in general, I mean, they really helped put on the map, you know, 
that's something that's debated in the movie whether punk the the term punk rock came from Cream Magazine. Yeah, that that was something I really wanted to touch on because that's just one of those arguments that me and all of my dorky friends have gotten into for 30 years. So I wanted to get to the truth of that. And uh, people debate whether the word heavy metal, I think it was Metal Mike Saunders, uh, used the word heavy metal in like maybe 71. Mm. And, and that's where the term came from. Some people think it came from uh, Steppenwolf's song. You know, so anyway, it's just one of those dorky arguments that, you know, people get into. And uh, I just loved uh, hearing Dave's explanation and then putting legs with Neil right after Dave, where he just said, you know, that's because legs, of course, wants to take, you know, I think probably wants to take credit for, for coining that term as well. So it, it, it was a fun, fun segment to, to work on. He said he's such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as we start to uh, to wind down here, JJ, I mean, um, I think it's obviously, you know, you were willed this magazine at four. Do you own the rights to Cream now? Did you ever not own the rights at a certain point? I do own the rights now, but there was a long period of time where I did not, you know, after my dad passed away, my mom stepped in as publisher, essentially tried to keep the magazine afloat until I was of age to take the reins. But the world changed, you know, where it was sort of right at the inception of the MTV generation where people were spending their ad dollars, things like that. So long story short, the magazine was sold in, I want to say, 86 or 87 to, you know, an investor who took it from Detroit to L.A. And that's when it sort of kind of shifted gears and went into a lot more of the the, the hair metal stuff. And, you know, a- after that, uh, long story short, again, the magazine changed hands a number of times and the IP was kind of broken off into a bunch of little pieces. Um, and I've spent the better part of my adult life putting those rights back together. The good news is that when I'm not busy producing films about Cream Magazine, I'm a practicing intellectual property attorney. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> my worlds collided when I started reassembling the Cream puzzle. And it, it literally took me uh, about 15 years to do it because some of the pieces were owned by other people. And that you know required um, negotiations and deals and bringing them into the fold. There was litigation involved. Um, there was all sorts of crazy stuff that happened. And it took until 2016 um, to finally get everything back together. And that's when Scott, Jan, and I kicked off the film. So it was very sort of serendipitous and fortuitous that the timing lined up that way. And and for me, it was like the the, the first way to put my stamp on the Cream legacy and, and hopefully use it as a springboard for more Cream stories to come. What would you like to do in the future with, with the Cream property? We've got some things in the hopper. The next thing that will follow the documentary is we're working on a print issue, a commemorative print issue, limited edition that'll drop in November, sort of a best of cream edition, 100, and 100 plus pages. And we're really excited about that. Um, Jan's working on that with me as well. And then we're in development on cream TV show. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in the characters and, and possibly adapting the documentary into a scripted show. Uh, or maybe even a feature film. But, you know, as I said earlier, there's so many cream stories that that we want to tell. So I really think that that's where a lot of our energy and focus will go is to creating more cream content down the road. So that's what's in the queue. 
Jan, you've been, you know, a lifer in rock and roll doing this for 50 odd years or whatever. What are some of the differences you notice about today's rock and roll and rock and roll stars or lack of rock and roll stars in comparison to the huge larger than life personalities of the 70s and 80s and 60s, etc.? I don't really think there's that much difference. I think whatever drives you to be a star to get on stage is always the same. I think the difference is, is how you are able to report it. I mean, I don't know in your world, but it's like you get 20 minutes with someone, you never get a sense of them. You never get to those little moments and turn them into revelations about who this person is. And, and to me, that's the biggest thing. Right. I really find that they're, the reason that people make music and get up on a stage are exactly the same. Same as they used to be, as they always were. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that, that I've really started to think about, you know, sort of in a, a now versus then, is there there used to be this, like, ecosystem between the bands, the writers, and the fans, and everybody held each other accountable, um, and everybody was kind of on this level playing field. You don't really see that anymore. Like, the, the industry has shifted, and it's so driven by clickbait and limited access limited attention spans that you don't really see that anymore. So that to me is like that community that's, that was created around that, that ecosystem where you would, you would have, you know, fans write letters to the editor, editors write back, editors slam the bands, the bands show up at the offices, you know, that sort of thing is what really made not only the magazine special, but the music special at that time. I think, you know, because of the way that, that the industry is today, I think that the music has suffered as a result of that. So that to me is just maybe one more reason why the world needs cream now more than ever. Right. So. Yes. <laughs> I think there was a real community aspect to all of that. Like he's like JJ said, the ecosystem, it's really a community, but it's a, between the readers, the writers, the bands, and that's that you felt like you were in a club, you know, that's kind of missing. You, you just don't get that as much with a, you know, some of these online, as great as it is to be able to, you know, have discourse about this band or that and do it, you know, the immediacy of it all is, 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 is great. But on the other hand, I think you, you lose that sense of, of being in a, like this exclusive club mm-hmm. that existed with Cream. The camaraderie of it, you know what I mean? When you, can, when you can all write your articles from home and put it up online where it disappears the next day, you know, those days of all being in a, a room, who's going to do what assignment, where's the pictures, and let's assemble this. I mean, that might never happen again. Exactly. I mean, you know, just to picture how unruly the, the, the newsroom must have been. you got people fighting over a particular record, or you've got this, and then you're riffing off of what this guy says, and then, you know, it's just all of that is, is, is now missing. And it's just now, it's just... Uh, done from home and it's just taken on a new or it just takes place uh online with a big emoji fight right between you know two that's two right. yeah. and that's the extent of it and it's not quite the same so yeah what was the biggest difference between rolling stone and cream back in the heyday i think always even to today um rolling stone had great reverence for rock stars and actually would really want to show a human face and I you know when I worked there in their newsroom, um, you couldn't actually write about bands that were Jan's um, winners' favorites. You couldn't trash them. I mean, Jim DeRogatis got fired for writing a negative Hootie and the Blowfish review, and Lester got banned early on, too. So wow. I think us anything goes, the more bizarre, the better, you know, back in the day. And I think that we really did embrace people thinking out of the box and, and really 
just going so far out to describe something, not using normal, this record is like the last record, it builds on the other one. We we would use other means to discuss it and much more imagine. I think that they, Rolling Stone, put people on pedestals and cream drag them off pedestals. What a great line. <laughs> last question for you guys. Is there is there a story, a cream story, a cream experience, a cream moment uh, that we haven't talked about yet, that's your favorite from the documentary. I mean, there's so much stuff we didn't even discuss. Something that stands out for you. You want to start, Scott or JJ? I think we kind of covered some. I mean, the the one thing that I always come back to is the, the what JJ already mentioned, which is early on was uh, the affiliation with the White Panthers in Detroit. I I, I found that fascinating. Now, just, what were the White Panthers? We know the Black Panthers, but what were the White Panthers? They were like the um, the the brothers of like the. Black Panther, except the um, they were you know friends, friends of the Black Panthers. White, and you know Jan might do a better job of explaining it, but I've always been fascinated by that and uh, and read a lot about it and that time period. And I, you know, unfortunately, we weren't able to kind of get that into the story as much as we would have liked. But uh, again, you could make a whole film about just about that. Once again, yes, yeah, it's hard to do a documentary in ninety minutes from something that's twenty five years long or whatever it was, you know. It's tough. You have to make tough decisions about, you know, what's going to work and what doesn't. And you can't get too attached to any one particular part of the story. But that is one part that I uh, still think about when I watch. How about you, JJ? My favorite part was it really was all of it. I I went into this thing with a a, a sort of a buy the ticket, take the ride sort of uh, approach in, in learning about all things cream and, you know, my father included in you know, some really high points and some really low points and in, in learning about the good, the bad, the ugly, the crazy. And it was such an eye-opening thing. And and it's what Scott, Jan, and I talked about at the very beginning, what we wanted this, you know, experience to be. And, and for me personally, you know, I always, I, I joke about this sometimes. I probably should have been in, in therapy at a young age to deal with my father's death. And I never was. And this was like, therapy by fire hose right. and with 40 different therapists that we interviewed, you know, and each that I took away a little piece of the history and, and learned more about my dad and learned more about myself. So it really was the, for me, it was every, every last part of it, the shitty interviews, the great interviews. I took something away from all of it. How about you, Jan, any experiences that you want to share with us that we haven't talked about? No, when you were talking about the Iggy and the offices and, and Barry put the trash can over his head, I didn't even think that was a big deal because what it was like all the time. So when JJ was telling that story, I thought, wow. But I think that really typifies what Creamley was like in that very last sequence where Dave Marsh says, Daniel Helsky said that Ted Nugent, I was his favorite writer. I wonder how he'll feel when he learns how to read. You know, it's that sense of making fun of people. To me, that was more cream than any single thing in the whole movie. I love uh, the uh, rock stars in their cars. Just seeing everybody in the 70s, you know, with their cars. And then you see David Lee Roth on the motorcycle. And just this overwritten paragraph of like, Dave slides into the sunset with his, you know, a cow, dried cow skin, encrusted pants or whatever. It's like, what a great sign up there. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. The, the documentary is great, and I uh, always love hearing some awesome stories about a little rock and roll history. So thank you guys so much for this. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us, man. It's, it's been so much fun chatting with you, and I'm uh, really glad you dug the film. I did, and it's great talking to you too, Jan. Thank you so much. Legendary.
Uh, Did we lose Jan? Uh, she left. She's out. She left. She 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 did a mic, she's, mic she's drop done. and out. That's 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 very cream. You're a legend, Jan. Boom. That's so cream right there. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it.